Jesus tells a story in Matthew 18 about a king and his servant and an insurmountable debt that had to be paid. 10,000 talents or several million today in which the servant's response was payment cannot be made. The servant's only option was to be made a slave. On his knees he pleaded about the payment that was needed so the compassionate king uncharacteristically forgave the debt and set the man free though the man was unworthy see God is the king and we are the servants debtors unable to pay for the sins to be collected on judgment day we are entitled to no good thing undeserving of any immunity due to our disdain. For our transgressions have granted us eternal death in the grave. But, like the servant, that's not where we remain. God the King chooses to release us from these chains. That's why the reformers have declared that the righteous only receive salvation because God decided. No merit or work or human effort contributes to our faith of God's saving endeavor. This is the truth which makes us believers. Payment atoned by grace alone, sola gratia. Payment alone by grace alone, sola gratia. That's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Romans 5. Romans 5, 12 through 21. And we're going to see this morning that grace alone is the answer, but we need to be clear on what the question really is. In Romans 5, 12 through 21 is going to help us see that and answer that. Grace alone is the answer, but what's the question? And here's the question, and it's at the top of your notes. Does the will of fallen people have the capacity for exercising faith in the gospel? Or is a faith response to Christ the gift of God's gracious enabling? That's the question, and the answer truly is grace alone. Now, for Luther and the other reformers, these, this question that you have there in your notes is the hinge on which everything turns, because it determines whether Christianity is a gift of grace alone or a work of our own doing or our own believing. For, this, for Luther, this question whether the sinner's will is merely weakened by sin or actually enslaved and in bondage to sin, struck at the very heart of the gospel. The whole gospel of the grace of God is bound up in this question. A Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Erasmus understood this. We've mentioned Erasmus before. He's the one who gathered together and compiled the Greek New Testament that God, in his providence used to spark the Reformation. And yet, Erasmus chose to remain a Roman Catholic. And he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, 
to attack Luther's teaching on justification by grace alone. And Luther, in turn, responded by writing a book called The Bondage of the Will. And there you have the two issues, the freedom of the will and the bondage of the will. Now, Erasmus called his book The Freedom of the Will because he was attacking grace alone that Luther taught. And Erasmus chose not to attack the other issues, the issues really that we've been talking about leading up to this lesson. For example, he didn't attack Luther on church authority versus scripture alone. He didn't attack Luther on faith plus works versus faith alone. He didn't attack Luther on the ritual of the mass versus Christ alone. No, he chose to attack sola gratia. Grace alone. And Luther was glad he did. In fact, he actually praised Erasmus for getting to the heart of the issue of the Reformation and more importantly, the issue of the gospel. And here's what he said. You alone have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You have not worried me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like, trifles rather than issues. Wow, that's a bold statement in our study of the Reformation. He says, in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood. You and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns and aim for the vital spot. Literally, he said, you have taken me by the throat. For that, I heartily thank you, for it is more gratifying for me to deal with this issue. You see, as one author put it, one pastor said it well, Luther and the Reformers were careful to remove from salvation the last possible support for human merit. They affirm that while Christ is the ground or basis of salvation, Christ alone, and faith is the instrumental means by which we receive salvation, faith alone, the ultimate cause of our salvation is God's grace alone. Faith doesn't save us. Christ does. On the basis of unmerited mercy of God, which He has shown toward us, us, the undeserving. Our response of faith is itself part of God's gift of salvation. Far from working for our salvation, it is a gift. Faith is a gift. It is not our own. The fall of man, through Adam's sin, has left us in bondage to sin with no capacity for faith on our own. If we believe, and we must believe, it is because God has given us the ability to do so. Boy, it really makes me uh, appreciate 1 Corinthians 1.30 all the more, which says this, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or, we could go to Ephesians 2. 8 and 9, and hear Paul who says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I like what Martin Luther says, and hopefully 
well, it's reality, and hopefully by God's word we encounter that reality. Here's what Luther said. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. So we're going to tackle the hardest thing this morning. And that is to have the understanding that our salvation and all that we receive it in it is by grace alone. Now, last week we looked at Romans 5, 12 through 21 and saw that it was a tale of two men. Either you're in who? Either in Adam or you are in Christ. Exactly. And we saw that God gives super, the superabounding gift of saving grace through Christ alone to those that are enslaved under sin's deadly rule in Adam. And we saw the reign of death in Adam. How sin has invaded humanity and occupied every single human heart all because of one man's sin. And then we reflected on the reign of life in Christ. And we saw five contrasts moving through verses 15 through 19 that really are summed up best in verse 19. Look at verse 19 in your Bibles. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. I like what... uh, theologian and professor at Dallas Seminary, Charles Ryrie, discusses imputation in his book, Basic Theology, and he ends the whole discussion with this one simple sentence in typical Ryrie fashion, and he says this, from being in Adam to being in Christ, that's my story by the miracle of his grace. Isn't that good? From being in Adam to being in Christ, that's my story by the miracle of His grace. Well, in light of what we looked at last week, if you can't get excited about the grace of God, then either you're still in Adam or your spiritual doodad is just broken. Because the third thing that, in the way this passage ends, is this. Rejoice in the reign of grace in Christ alone. Rejoice in in the reign of grace in Christ alone. Look at verses 20 through 21. We didn't really get to look at those very closely. Notice what verse 20 says. He says, The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Circle abounded and circle all the more in your Bibles or underline them there. Here's the bad news. There's bad news and good news in these two verses. The bad news is in verse 20 in the sense that the law entered the picture to make, not to make one righteous, but to increase one's sinfulness. That's the bad news. The law doesn't decrease our sin. It increases our sin. Because he's been talking about Adam and Christ. And any good Jew or any good Jewish believer would say, Wait a minute, you missed a key man in that whole history lesson. You missed Moses in the giving of the law. I thought by keeping the law, we restrain sin. And and in fact... The Jewish people of that day, and you can find it in their writings and teachings, they taught that by keeping the law, you actually countered Adam's sin. 
Yeah, Adam got us into this mess, but by keeping the law of God, we can get out of it. And Paul says, no, no, no. Far from restraining sin, far from enabling you to overcome Adam's sin, Paul says, the law simply increases your sin. It shows you just how sinful you are. You know, as long as you don't have a rule to keep, you can feel pretty good about yourself. But as soon as there's a law and you tell your kids, here's the law, what do your kids do as soon as you tell them there's a law, a rule? What do they do? Here's this line, do not cross it. In fact, here's some Awana lines. If you tell these kids not cross this line, you're going to find the whole group right here. Right here. And then that real rebel is going to kind of go this, right? And then the really crazy ones just go, what line? What are you talking about? You know, right. Because you give a rule and that's what what magnifies our sin. You say, well, why would God give the law? For that very reason, to show us that we can't do it and only He can by His grace alone. And that's the good news. The good news is where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, indeed, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wow. Sin or the law shines the light on our sin to drive us to God's grace and his righteousness as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Now, you see where we've come in this passage in verse 17 It is we who are reigning. And we come to verse 21, and who's reigning now? Tell me, who? Verse 21. No, who's reigning? Who's the subject of the reigning? Who? Verse 21. No, no. Well, sin reigned, but at the end of verse 21, who's reigning? Yes, yes, that grace would reign. So look, we've gone to the point where we've passed out of the picture. What's reigning? It's grace. It's grace. You would think righteousness would be reigning. Sin reigns and now righteousness reigns. No, because our righteousness cannot overcome sin. What must reign over sin is the grace of God alone. And that's what he wants us to rejoice in. Wow, that's amazing. And notice, faith, believing, receiving, and even us ourselves have passed out of the picture. And it's all grace. It's all grace. And it's all Christ. And it's all His righteousness. That's how we're going to reign. Nothing that we have done. And so in these verses... These 10 verses of 12 through 21, grace or some form of grace is mentioned 10 times in 10 verses. As I was studying it last couple weeks for Christ alone, I kept seeing grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study grace alone from this same passage. We studied Christ alone. Now... Has the grace of God ceased to be amazing to you? Has the grace of God become so familiar? Have we become so apathetic? Have we taken it for so granted? Or are we so in bondage to sin that grace has become boring? Well, I hope this morning, 
As we look at this passage from the aspect, we're going to look at seven reasons why grace is amazing. And so let's tackle it. Let's look at it. Number one, God's grace is amazing because God's grace is His saving favor. His saving favor. Or you could say, we don't use favor a lot anymore, but people still refer it that way. Saving kindness. Saving kindness given to undeserving sinners. In fact, there's a very good definition of grace. Just a basic definition that is in your notes. Notice, grace is the unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. You see, it's God showing kindness, love, goodness to the undeserving. Now, why are sinners so undeserving of God's grace? Uh, Thinking through Romans, thinking through key passages, I have three reasons here. And we'll move through this quickly because really we've talked about it a lot, but you can't talk about grace without talking about how sinful and undeserving we are. First of all, why are all sinners so undeserving of God's grace? Because all have sinned in and with Adam. That's Romans 5, 12 through 21. Look at it. Look at last week's lesson. We are in Him and we sinned with Him and therefore we are plunged into sin. Sin reigns over us. We're condemned. And we are deserving of only one thing according to Romans 5 and that's the death penalty. Physical spiritual and eternal separation from God, worthy of only one thing from God, and that is Him pouring His eternal wrath upon us. That's what we deserve from God. Please, please be careful of saying God must be fair. For if God is fair, we get one thing and one thing only, God's eternal wrath. We don't want fairness. We want grace. Grace for the undeserving. Number two, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You say, I don't know, I don't like this in Adam thing. I I didn't get a chance. Well, you have your chance in Romans 1 through 3. And the conclusion at the end of those three chapters is simply this. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God, and we talked about at the end of chapter, we're actually in the middle of chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, how at the end of the day, when we measure our lives against God's holiness, our mouths are shut, and we are worthy of being declared guilty as charged. But here's where grace comes in. Because in Romans 3.21 it says this, But now, apart from law, here we are condemned with no hope. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's grace. God initiates for the undeserving. And then number three, all are dead. That is separated. Remember, death, separation. All are dead in their sins by birth and by choice. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. We've looked a lot at the Romans passages. Let's look at Ephesians. Notice what it says in verse 1. 
And you were, that is before you were saved, you were in a state of dead, deadness, separation, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So you were living a life and had a nature that was such that there was only one thing you were choosing, you were freely choosing to disobey, having been enslaved by the course of this world and the devil. But it goes on, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. So it's not just the world around us, the devil above us. There's an issue inside of us. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. What did we deserve? We were children of disobedience, children of wrath, deserving only God's wrath. But again, this is where God's grace comes in. Look at verse 4. Verse 1 through 3, pretty doom and gloom. And rightly so. But God, that matches the but now of Romans 3. But God, that's grace. That's where grace comes in. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even, even when we were dead in our transgressions, that is undeserving, he made us alive together with Christ. And Paul just has to stop and say, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness to us. So what does this tell us? What does God do for such undeserving people? He does two things. First of all, God shows common grace to the undeserving. What does God do for the undeserving? God shows common grace to the undeserving. This is what Jesus said about God the Father. He said in Luke 6:35, "But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men." God shows grace to the undeserving. You know how he does it? He lets them get up in the morning. He lets them have families. He lets them have birthdays and anniversary. He gives them laughter, sunshine, the patter of rain, the celebration of holidays. He gives them joy upon joy in this life that they are so undeserving of. There's one thing we deserve from God. One, the second we're born to be cast into eternal lake of fire. And yet God lets the unsaved live and gives them opportunity to accept Christ. So he shows common grace, but none of this. Sunshine won't lead you. Sunshine doesn't save you. Family doesn't save you. Common grace doesn't save you. So here's what God does. God gives saving grace. He gives saving grace to those undeserving sinners he chooses to save. That's what God does for the undeserving. I have a great quote there by Charles Hodge. You can read it. Salvation is of grace. The gospel is a system of grace. 
All its blessings are gratuitously bestowed. All is so ordered that in every step of the progress of redemption and in its consummation, the grace or the undeserved love of God is conspicuously displayed. Nothing is given or promised on the ground of merit. Everything is an undeserved favor. That salvation... That salvation was provided at all is a matter of grace and not of debt. That one man is saved and another not is to the subject of salvation a matter of grace. Even in Titus 3, Paul gives another one of those gracious buts. But when, he says in Titus 3, For we were all were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Wow, poured out in us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So I hope that you see grace is amazing because it's God taking the initiative to save many undeserving sinners. But it's more amazing yet. Number two, God's grace is a free gift. God's grace is a free gift given to undeserving sinners. Now, that's amazing. I like what Martin Luther says. We, we resist this doctrine. Listen to what Luther says. If God were willing to sell His grace, we would accept it more quickly and gladly than when He offers it for nothing. Why? Because I didn't contribute anything. Okay? And, and we, we just, we can't stand, and, and, and we know that in doing that, we become in his debt. And we don't want to be in anybody's debt. So grace is a free gift. Now, what does free mean? Here in Romans 5, last week we said in Romans 5, actually it's in verse 15, if you want to look at it. Verse 15, Paul uses two different words for gift. He uses free gift in the New American Standard, and he uses gift. There are two different Greek words, but the idea is this isn't just any gift. It's a free gift. Now, what does free mean? Free means we do nothing to deserve it. Free means that we can't stand before God. No one, no one can stand before God and say, you owe me a verdict of justified in your sight. You owe me. Second, free means we do nothing to earn it. No one can stand before God and say, I worked for an acquittal, now give it to me. I worked for this. Free means you do nothing to purchase it. No one will stand before God's throne of judgment and say, I paid for my sins with all that I did for you or all that I did for others. No one will be able to say that. And free means we do nothing to pay it back. No one will be able to stand before God's throne of judgment and say, I'll pay you back for this. Just give me enough time and I won't owe you anything. No, no, it's a free gift. And why must it be free? Because Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are as filthy, what? Rags. And, I, and rags there is a street term that's still used today for the 
rags that were used to soak up the menstrual flow of a woman on her period. And if you find that offensive, you're getting the message. That the best that we can bring before God on our best day, where we help the little lady over the, to cross the street, where we, where we cut the grass for the church, where we served in ministry, where we sang in the praise. I don't care what it is. On your best day, you offer it up, and God looks at that compared to His holiness, and He says, throw it in the trash. It's like the rags used to soak up the unclean flow of blood of a woman's menstrual cycle. See, that's why Paul says... By grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of the result of works, because your works and my works are as filthy rags in the sight of God's holiness. So here's the idea. Grace must be free because sin and death rule over us. That's what we saw last week in this passage. In verses 14 and 21, Sin or grace has to be a free gift because we are ruled by a dictator called sin that leads to a dictator called death. You see, you cannot will yourself good enough to impress God, please God, or convince God that he should save you. Sin reigns over us. You cannot and I cannot liberate ourselves from sin's tyranny by willing it so or trying harder. And then death reigns over us. Think about that. I will myself not to die. How's that working for humanity? It's not. The statistic is 100%. You will die. And you cannot will by choosing to raise yourself from the dead. And yet we already saw in Ephesians that God says, you're spiritually dead, I'm spiritually dead. So grace must be free because sin and death reigns over us. But also look at this, a little more in depth. Grace must be free because our wills are not free. And I would show this to you from Ephesians 2. We've just read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Let me give you what kind of break that down so we can understand what he said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. First of all, first of all, we're enslaved to the world system. We're enslaved to the world system. We don't freely choose what we do. The world system. It says, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And the world is opposed to God's will, God's ways, and God's work. You were enslaved to a worldview. I remember before, right before I got saved, a couple years before I got saved, being taught at uh, Oak Park by my bio- biology teacher, one of my favorite teachers of all time. And according to her, I was one of her favorite students at all time. But I remember her teaching evolution and talking about how we came from monkeys. And it all made sense to me. It made perfect sense. She was a good teacher. It, was, it made sense. Why? Because I was walking a course to, according to the course of this world. And then I remember a couple of years later accepting Christ and being saved by God's grace and thinking that's the dumbest thing I had ever heard in my life. Why? Because of God's grace. Did I get smarter? No. 
God's grace freed me from the course of this world. Number two, we are enslaved to the devil and his demonic forces. Notice in verse 2 of Ephesians 3, it says, oh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verse uh, verse 2 of verse 2, sorry. You not only walked according to the course of the world, but according to the prince of the power of the air. And if you don't take Paul's word for it, listen to Jesus. Jesus said this to unbelieving sinners. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Number three, we are enslaved to our own sinful desires that are constantly at war with God. This comes in Ephesians 2 verse 3. You walked according to the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of your mind. Now, let me say very quickly that when you're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, it doesn't mean you do all the sin that you could do. It just means that everything you do do is sinful and unacceptable to God. So, you know, so you're looking at this and like, I think I was better than that before I got saved. Or maybe you're here and you're unsaved today and you're thinking... Ah, I'm not so bad. That's not really me. But the reality is deep within you. And compared to God's holiness, that is all of us. This is why grace must be free. You see, we're not good. We're bad. Can you do a little Michael Jackson here? We're bad. Okay. We're not good. I'm not good. I'm bad. And so are you. We're not sick. We're dead. We're dead, and we're defiant, and we're doomed. Our wills are enslaved. The gift must be free. And this is why, therefore, number three, grace is amazing because God's grace is given to undeserving sinners through Christ alone. Because only He is good enough to please God. Only He is righteous enough. I love this verse. I think I put it in your notes. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And you could literally write in your Bible and it wouldn't be uh, heresy to put alone in Christ alone. For the grace of God alone which was given to you in Christ alone. Let me just give you three. We've We've already taught on Christ alone, but let me... Let me hit you with this. First of all, Christ is God's grace with us. Christ is God's grace with us in the cradle of the incarnation. Whoa. I mean, if I had time, I'd take you to John chapter 1 that says that in Him, He is full of grace and truth. For the full, for all of His fullness, we have received we have all received and grace upon grace. Wow, I mean, just Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. Here's what I want you to get from this point. Grace is not an abstract principle on a Hallmark card. It's a concrete person, Jesus Christ. Grace is not a loving concept that we can all embrace if we just think about it enough. No, it's a living Christ. It's not a loving concept. It's a living Christ. Grace is not a gracious idea. It is God incarnate. Isn't that amazing? That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, is that Jesus Christ is grace incarnate. 
You want to see grace? Look at Jesus. This is why in Romans 3, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, God, the righteousness of God has been manifested because it's appeared in the person of Jesus. This is why in Titus, in Titus 2, listen to Titus 2.11. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. How does grace appear? Who's he talking about? Tell me. He's talking about Jesus. And so you can just say, hey, grace, and Jesus would respond. Because that's who he is. That's who he is. Wow. He's not personifying grace as a figure of speech. He's saying grace is a person, and it's Jesus. Christ is God's grace with us in the cradle. But look at number two. Christ is God's grace for us on the cross of redemption. Christ is God's grace for us. Someone aptly said that if you wanted to find grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Pretty good definition. And we've already seen how Christ is for us. He gives us grace by satisfying God's wrath in our place. He gives us grace by freeing us from the reign of sin and death. He gives us grace by reconciling us to God while we were still enemies. He gives us grace by sacrificing Himself for us, by exchanging our sinfulness for His righteousness. According to 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30, He's our everything. He's our everything. I was encouraging our grow group that we were going to study Christ alone last week, and I sent an email out and said, Christ is our everything. Except I said, Chris is our everything. I left the T off. And we had some good people to respond, and I'm glad they did. I like you a lot, but you're not my everything. And guess what? Nothing else is either. Nothing else is either, because He is Christ's force. But look at one more here from verse 21 of Romans 5. Christ is God's grace over us, over us with the crown of the resurrection and His exaltation. Earlier I asked you in verse 21, who is reigning in the last part of that verse 21? And some of you immediately gave, and rightly so, the church answered, Jesus But the text says grace. But you were right when you said Jesus. I don't know if you knew why you were right, but you were right. Why? Because again, the idea, if grace is reigning and he's the embodiment of that grace, then who's he saying, who's really reigning? It's Jesus. And we know that because how's he in the verse? Look at verse 21. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ, our what? Our Lord. So what he, he's just, he's just trying to get you to see that Jesus is the one through whom we receive grace because he is the one who lords it over sin, who lords it over death, whose righteousness satisfies God's wrath. Now, if you're not getting amazed about grace, then I'm not doing my job or you're still in Adam's sin. I wish I had time. In Romans 3 through 8. Through Jesus Christ is repeated again and again and again. 
Five times in Romans 3, it's through Jesus that you have justification by faith alone. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, three times you have the benefits of justification through Christ alone. Right here in Romans 5, 12 through 21, four times you have the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. And did you know that Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8 all end their chapters with through Christ alone? That's where you get God's grace. Number four. God's grace is amazing because His grace abounds much more than the sin of undeserving sinners. It abounds much more. This is the idea of Romans 5, 12 through 21, where Adam's sin abounds, God's grace abounds, multiplies, increases. I said last week, this idea of grace abounding is like Jesus saying, you win the lottery, but you don't have to pay taxes. How much does it abound? It's sufficient to pay for all the sins of humanity. How much does it abound? It's effective to actually save the worst of sinners. This one guy that got us into this mess, his grace was sufficient to save Adam. Isn't that good news? The murderer, Moses, sufficient to save him. The adulterer and murderer, David, sufficient to save him. The terrorist and persecutor, of God's people, Paul, Saul, sufficient to save him. And I don't know where you are today. And we got large enough class. I don't know if you've got secret sin. I don't know if you're addicted to porn. I don't know if you are stealing from your employer. I don't know if you're in bondage to gossip. I don't know what your sins are. I have a hard enough time keeping up with my own. But here's what I know. No matter how deep a pit you're in, no matter how strong the hold of lust is on your life, God's grace superabounds more. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. So don't be afraid to come to Him. He already knows about it. And He's already done everything to release you and free you. So come to His abounding grace. Number five. Because here's the good news. God's grace rules over the sin of the undeserving sinner. God's grace rules over our sin. How good is that? You see, here's what happens. Here's what happens in this passage. Now, track with me. He just gets done saying in verse 20 through 21, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, and grace reigns over sin. And so... Some get the wrong idea about grace. And they come to the conclusion, look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase, may abound more? And Paul's answer is very clear. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What is he saying? God's grace reigns through righteousness. Through righteousness. Look at verse 21. I think we missed this. Grace would reign 
through righteousness. Grace doesn't reign through us sinning more. Grace reigns by the righteousness of God transforming us so that we are now under the reign of grace, which is going to produce righteousness in your life. If you aren't seeing God change your life, you need to ask yourself, am I still in Adam? Or if, or if, if I so hardened my sin as a believer that I'm allowing sin to reign in my life when that should not be. May it never be. Now, I've had times in my life where I've allowed it. I get that. But I was miserable, and it led to consequences. And God's Holy Spirit and God's Holy Word convicted and disciplined me as His child in Christ. And I repent. And I confess and I turn away because grace reigns. Grace rules over my sin. Does it rule over yours? Man. You see, God's grace rules over sin to liberate both the lawless and the legalist from its mastery. Uh, In this passage, to the lawless believer, Paul says, verses 1 and 2, Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. To the legalist in Romans six fourteen, Paul says, "For sin, so better be careful. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Listen to Martin Luther. This grace of God is a very great, strong, mighty, and active thing. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, leads, drives, draws, changes, works all in man, and lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. It is hidden, but its works are evident. Wow! That's awesome. Is that happening in your life? Is that happening? Do you see it in mine? I hope if you don't, talk to me. Because it should be seen. In my life and yours, it should be seen. Number six, God's grace is able to save undeserving sinners without distinction. Without distinction. Does God's grace, and I cannot spend time, we're done, but listen, God's grace doesn't save everyone without exception. But it can save anyone without distinction. Do you see the difference? God's grace will not save everyone without exception. That's universalism. But it will save anyone without distinct. doesn't matter who you are. And then finally, and this sets us up for next week, God's amazing grace means all the glory goes to who? God alone. All the glory goes to God alone. Wow, is, that, is that just amazing? Is God's grace amazing? Yeah, and that sets us up for next week. Who gets the glory in all this? To God be the glory alone. Oh, please. Oh, please, please, please. Check your life. Examine it before the gospel and before God. And ask God, does your grace rule over my sin? Let's pray. Father, we come. And the riches of your grace. Wow, you know, like 40 minutes. And you said it's going to be all eternity to reveal the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus. Let's not settle for one lesson. Let's not settle 
for a few blanks filled in. Lord, let us be immersed in the ever-abounding, always-increasing grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. Truly, to you be the glory through your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff.